Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, was your March Madness bracket almost busted this evening when Duke nearly got upset by UCF? I understood half the words you just said, I think. <laughs> so did you, you, you do know it's March Madness. I understand that it is March. Okay. And, and you did or did not fill out a bracket for the NCAA tournament? I did not fill out a bracket, as many people will be shocked to hear. <laughs> I also did not fill out a bracket for like the first time ever, I think. But Duke is the number one seed and they nearly got upset by UCF. It was brutal to watch. And I... I do not like duke in magic terms duke literally hit like runner 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 outs in the last minute of the game to steal the victory they got pretty lucky wow i actually like watching basketball that was like the i got into basketball when i lived in chicago watching the bulls the year that uh derrick rose got hurt oh yeah i got i got really into it but then once i moved to new york i didn't like have anyone to watch with and then i just lost interest and then just let magic consume all of my time that's the best way to go yeah, for sure. So we've got a very exciting episode this week. This is one of my favorite new-ish staples to the Lords of Limited canon. We're doing the 50 takes in 50 minutes episode for Ravnica Allegiance. Yeah, I think it's a great way to like take a look in on the format after, you know, I feel like we've pretty well solved it and just sort of like jam all of the information in 50 little snippets about the format. Yeah. So before we dive into that, and we don't have much time before then if we want to cram the full 50 minutes in here, but we should take a look at maybe some leaderboard action. You got any more drafts under your belt this week? Yeah, I just did an MTGO draft today, actually. And so I'm uh, 49 drafts now. I've done one more draft, 102 and 41. Got another trophy, 17 ha. trophies, and still at a 71% win rate. I had not done an MTGO draft in almost a month. That was shocking to me. Wow. I had no idea. Like the last one I did was when you and I did the streamer showdown at the end of February. Oh, yeah. And we're going to have to do another one of those again pretty soon before Ravnica Legions is done. Yeah, we should probably do that this week. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I went back to MTGO as well. I was kind of getting tired. I was burnt out on the bots, I will say, this week. That's what I was going to say. It was such a breath of fresh air, like in a pod with people feeling like I could read signals and that I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And that you didn't think you were going to face Dovin's Acuity decks 50% of the time. Yeah, it was very nice. It was a welcome breath of fresh air. And I intend to do much more of that this week. I agree. I'm up to 99 drafts over there on MTGO, 193 to 96 record, 26 trophies. So up a couple trophies this week, 67% win rate. Yeah, and if we look in on best of one, I've done a few of those. Only one that I've recorded, 27 drafts, 131 and 63, 67% win rate, 10 quote unquote trophies. And then I have done some Skype drafts with my younger brother, which was pretty fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm up to 41 drafts there, 185 to 98, 11 quote unquote trophies, 65% win rate. I started tracking my like, I don't know, fluctuation in mythic ranking. I've sort of posted about it on Twitter earlier this week. And I just wish there was maybe a little bit more... <laughs> transparency about that because i had like a 66 percent win rate over i don't know like 40 plus games and i dropped 80 ranking points oof i mean like 
not to say, I mean, it's pretty, you know, probably has to do with like who I'm getting paired up against or whatever, but it just feels bad to like have a good win rate. You know, I had like 66% win rate over those games and, and be going down in the mythic ranking. Like you just have to seven X so many times in a row to climb that ladder. Yeah, that is what it feels like. I feel like every time I don't seven X, I lose rating points in mythic. And I've, I've been fluctuating between anywhere like as low as 25 to a hundred. Oh yeah, me too. I'm fluctuating anywhere between, I think I'm at like 500 right now. Actually, I haven't, that was from when I like last tweeted about it and then I haven't played all weekend. So I, I'd be interested to see where I am, but I will stick with my stance that I do not believe a thousand people will make mythic rank by the end of the season. So I don't, I don't fear for my slot in the coveted arena GP that we have coming for us. Yeah, I think that's reasonable to assume. So the other piece of business we want to talk about is the Lords of Limited Patreon, of course. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is a place where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. The Lords of Limited Discord still popping. People still trying to figure out the format. And I will say one of my favorite things about the discord is sort of how it gives something for everyone even if you're like newer to limited or you feel like really seasoned and you're one of the people who folks are like looking towards for answers to their questions about picks about draft orders or whatever and i think that is rewarding for those people as well you know i see the same people often being sought after the same people who are available to like give advice on the real-time drafts that happen those are some of my favorite parts we have a like section of the discord called discord plays mtg where folks just sort of like screen cap their arena picks post them in like people weigh in and then they move on to the next and it's a way for like you know four people five people to draft at the same time and weigh in their decisions so it's really nice to see like folks coming together and like getting different things out of the discord i think it really has something for everybody depending on what your level of investment in limited what your level of experience in limited is Beyond the Discord, there's a lot of other great perks for folks who want to give back to the show at varying levels. And we, of course, want to make sure that we shout out each and every new patron the first week that they join. We've got a handful of people this week to welcome. So welcome Jimmy, Aaron, Dan, Rebecca, Dylan, Matt, Edvard, Drew, Bates, Alexandros, Laszlo, and Torjado. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Is Torjado like a jar and a tornado combined? Do you think? I don't know, but I hope it doesn't happen near where I live is all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I would also like to add to that a shout out to like our moderators or our yes. leaders as they're called in the discord. So Stunlock, DC Sports, Quarter Calls and Kaz, they're all phenomenal. And I, I really, really appreciate them answering everyone. And I, I've been doing a lot of that this weekend, too, because I haven't been streaming or anything like that. It's just really awesome how helpful people are. So kudos to everybody. Yeah, I agree. They they should get a shout out for sure more more often. They make the Discord function in a way that you and I could not do on our own. One other thing we want to shout out again, you know, we sort of teased this a few weeks ago. We do have another podcast available on a new app called brew.com. It's currently only available on the iOS store, but will be coming to Android in the coming weeks. It is a podcast all about Magic Arena things. We're talking about updates to the program. We're talking about current formats being played. You can check that out on the like calendar of events. And then we're talking about our experiences with not only Limited, you know, we did sort of like a full dive on Lords of Limited last week on the bot breakdown, but we're talking about the bots each and every week there. We're talking about standard i'm trying to rank up i'm talking about the tier one decks ben is talking about the spicy brews on tap that he's been running through so you know if you're looking to check us out Tolarian community college has a podcast on there as well you can check it out for a 30-day free trial see the other podcast content on there that is also phenomenal and exclusive to brew so 
give it a shot if you're looking for some more Lords of Limited content, as some folks may be. Yeah, I've been playing Beers SC Scapeshift deck on there, and it has been a blast. It has been by far my favorite brew on tap. There's a CFB video with Matt Nass running through that deck. I think that's where Beers got it, and it is just a wild scene. That Scapeshift deck is fun. I'm excited to talk to you about that. All right, Ben, are you ready for this? We got 50 Ravnica Allegiance takes in 50 minutes. Easy peasy. Let's go. Start us off with number one. Number one, gates are C plus draft picks and should be chosen accordingly. You know, I think you gave that letter grade early on, and I think it really stuck for me and has been something that I've been reminding folks again and again each week as I think see things on Discord or on Twitter is that these cards are just above replacement level and should be picked accordingly. And especially as we'll get to as we round these out towards the end, these points, you'll see that gates sort of glue everything together. They make it so that this format isn't just what Guilds of Ravnica was, which was basically just a five guild set. You know, you're getting the value of, you know, splashing colors. You're getting the value of the like shards or wedges or whatever they're called. You're getting the value of the gate payoffs. They're just, they do so much in this format. And I think it's easy to like overlook them as just, just a land, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I've actually probably come down on the gates over the course of the format because I was so high on them to start because I don't feel like people understood how slow the format was and how good the gate payoffs were and how good splashing was. So I was crazy high on the gates. And now I probably am down to like just C plus and, you know, I'll pass them maybe much more so than I was in early in the format. But people were way, 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 way too low on them at the start of the format. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see like how that has sort of like leveled out in the real world, you know, maybe maybe not Magic Arena so much. But, you know, I think it's just a good lesson, not only for Ravnica Allegiance, but just for any format where you can take lands as picks. It just adds a layer of complexity to not only the drafting, but the deck building. When the lands come into play tapped, it adds a layer of complexity to the gameplay. When the lands are dual lands, it adds a like layer of complexity in terms of like cards you can pick or like how you're building your mana base. It's just like a very interesting tool. And I hope we see it more often than not. Well, I think some of that too comes from the gates weren't that high of picks for most of GRN, but it was a totally different format. So just being willing to reevaluate things in a new limit environment also, I think should be a takeaway from that. Number two, the guild power rankings in fifth place, Gruel. Boo. <laughs> in fourth place, Rakdos. In third place, Simic. In second place, we have a little bit of an outlier here, Orzov. And in first place, Azorius. And I do think that's right. Yeah, and this is not where we were at at the beginning of the format. You know, I think we were sort of applauding ourselves a few weeks into it, being like, I think we got this pretty right. And and things have shifted. You know, I had Rakdos higher, and I think that had to do with maybe a small sample size from the, the sealed arena preview event. And I had Orzov as number one. And I think we had Simic maybe even last at one point. I think I had Simic last at the start of the format saying like, I don't know what this is doing. There's no good removal in either blue or green. And then I started to figure out not only is it such a great home for a Gates deck, you can either go like blue, green, red, blue, green, white, like Bant or Teamer was a great place for a Gates deck. But Simic Aggro is just smooth as butter. You get a couple Soraform hybrids, some Aramunculus, Shark to Crab if you're so lucky, bounce your stuff with Admonition, Applied Biomancy. Like that deck just really hums when it gets going, you know? I agree. I, I might actually, honestly, at this point, I might switch Gruul and Rakdos. I might have Rakdos in last. I've played a bunch more Gruul, and I think Gruul might actually be fourth for me. Why can't red be good in limited? It never is. It was good in Ultimate Masters. It was the best color in Ultimate Masters. But since then, or before then, like I just can't 
really remember when red was doing its thing and everyone was like, yeah, that's the color I want to be taking cards from. All right, number three. Thank you for letting me have this one, Ben. Dovin's Acuity plus Clear the Mind is the best deck in the format. And I think we were talking about this pretty early on. Uh, It didn't take me getting beaten by this very many times before I wanted to try it out. And I think it was a pretty big miss from all parties. You know, it was easy to compare Dovin's Acuity to Disinformation Campaign at the start of the format and be like, well, Dovin's Acuity looks much worse. But once we saw how all the pieces came together, we saw why Clear the Mind was in the set and how powerful that was to loop. And you had this deck that just like, as long as you didn't die, you were going to win. Yeah, I, I think we were one of the first people on, like as far as announcing that, as far as like the podcasting world or like the general magic community. Mm-hmm. It feels like a lot of other people have picked up on it now and are really, really championing that as one of the better decks. So it feels good to have been there early on in the format. I agree. Number four, high alert is a high pick and worth building around. This is very true. And I think you were one of the people that put me onto this. I was sort of like medium on high alert. And then we drafted together, I remember, a high alert deck. And I was just really impressed with how powerful the card was. Yeah, I mean, it it just enables a lot of things. It's just very cool. Cards like this are so awesome for limited when they totally change your evaluation of some medium cards. Like you look at Senate Courier, which is already the best blue common in the set. But when <laughs> when, when you get a high alert, it just skyrockets in value. You know, the Pegasus Coursers that wheel in the draft, you're now excited about. It makes Fairy Duelist just like a pip better. Not even mentioning Azorius Knight Arbiter as being such a house with it. You get something that closes out the game in, in a matter of turns. So I, I think cards like this, you know, I, I'm already sort of like my limited mind the way i like to play magic i'm already sort of defaulting towards like well what powerful build arounds are there what sort of cards can i do janky things with and so like dovin's acuity and high alert appeal to me but i think just high alert and was just a good card but build around b build around b plus and not to be underestimated yep agree speaking of dovin's acuity and high alert number five having access to enchantment removal in your sideboard is very important uh, i think i mean i haven't heard this myself but i've heard stories of like the watsy streams that they do you know where they have like the folks sitting on the couches and talking about stuff and or they do their own streams that r&d has fessed up to it being a mistake that there wasn't a naturalized effect in this format so i think they had wished that green had some way to deal with enchantments at common as well as it was it was really only exposed to daylight as a way to deal with it at common and then you had mortify the mythic uncommon of the set and then of course cinder vines at rare and i guess maybe rampage the clans though i never went off with that i wanted something like that on my sideboard at the end of my 45 picks because there were some things you needed to deal with you know not only dovin's acuity and high alert but some cards that we're going to talk about a little bit down the line in this uh this 50 takes number six blade juggler is the best common in the set and it took it a while to get there at least for me i was probably three four five weeks into the format before i really was saying that so we had it at the number two black common slot initially behind grotestomize there was a lot of discussion in the discord about which one of those was better and i think the sort of the knock against blade juggler was that it doesn't always cost three you know but then owen kind of went on limited resources and was talking about how five mana three two draw card is still great i think that was what finally sold me on okay yeah blade juggler is just better than grotestomize and then the leap from there to once it was the best black common that it just was the best common in the set i think that that's been one of the most fun things about this format and why i've felt excited to continue to draft it two two and a half months deep is how much pick orders have fluctuated for me and not in a sense of like 
I don't know. I never felt like I was wrong. You know, I had final payment as the best common for a while. And then now I even have, I think, grasping thrall ahead of final payment, even in the Orzov rankings. And so like, that's been cool to reevaluate that, to reevaluate blade juggler ahead of grotesque demise, to like, think about whatever your top five, top six commons are and why Soraform hybrid keeps going up and up and up, which is going to bring us right into number seven. Soraform Hybrid is a fantastic magic card. I- I'm not going to forget when you put it into terms, when you were like, it's Wooly Loxodon, but it costs two instead of three to be a 2-2. And that was the first time I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, adapting is not the same as morphing because you can respond to adapting. So it's not like quite analogous, but it's pretty close. And when you think about it in that, those terms, it- it's very apparent why the card is so, so busted. Yeah, my territorial bore as the best green common <laughs> hot take didn't didn't quite pan out. We had I liked it. We we really leaned into the hot takes this time around. I hope we keep doing that because it's like there's uh, there's no real downside, right? Either you're right or we just get to make fun of each other. Like it's, <laughs> it's win win. It's win win win. Yeah. Number eight, Simic is a tempo aggro deck with built in flood insurance. And I think this also took us a little bit to realize. I think maybe three four weeks into the format, but that you just really want to be curving out with great creatures backed up by Arrestor's Admonition and Applied Biomancy, and just sort of leveraging that to put your opponent on the back foot. And then if your opponent ever does manage to stabilize, then you start adapting your stuff and your Soraform hybrids, turning them into 6-6s, your Aeromunculuses, turning them into 3-4 flyers. So it's got built-in flood protection and is a very effective aggro deck at keeping your opponent on the back foot. And Chillbringer was also a huge player in the success of Simic aggro tempo. Yeah, I mean, it's it sort of like reminds me of original Zendikar, those aggro decks that like still wanted to play 18 lands because of the landfall triggers like this feels like that, too. This is a deck where you want to get to six lands and on time so you can adapt your hybrid so you can adapt Skatewing Spy, you know, like there's a lot to do with your mana in this deck and it's still good on four mana because that means you're just going like creature, 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 creature. Number nine. Rhythm of the Wild wah, wah, is not as good as you think. I mean, I think both of us came in hot on this card. There was a, a lot of like controversy from the first time this set was out on Arena. The bots didn't have Rhythm of the Wild high in their pick order at all. And I think in retrospect, the bots were kind of onto something. People kept talking about Rhythm of the Wild wheeling all the time. Yeah, maybe. It's, it's very powerful when it comes down on exactly turn three. But outside of that, it's really not that oppressive at all. I have another problem with it, and maybe this is exactly in the context of the current state of Arena when we're recording this, which is that Soraform Hybrid goes very, very late. It's a, a pretty underrated card by the bots, and Soraform Hybrid and Rhythm of the Wild is a non-bow, and that feels bad when like your best two-drop creature is not something that interacts with this enchantment. Yeah, that's fair. So I, I don't know. Like I, it's, I have a bias against Gruul, I think, in this set. One, because like it's not my style of deck. But two, I just like don't know quite how to pilot it correctly. And this card doesn't really scare me on my opponent's side of the battlefield anymore. I would agree with that. I, I'm scared when it comes down on three. But any other turn, I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. Number 10, Rakdos is at its best as hyper aggro with ill-gotten inheritance as the curve topper. So I think... Rakdos is super focused, you know, to the point of wanting to maybe play multiple Footlight Fiends, Tin Street Dodger in the one drop slot, all very good. Plague White really shines here, Fireblade Artist, and just there's just a host of good efficient creatures at one, two, and three CMC. And then if you can stop your curve at four with Ill-Gotten Inheritance and maybe a Rakdos Firewheeler or two, I think you have a really, really, really good Rakdos deck brewing. I mean, if you could go one drop, but even not one drop, if you just went two drop, Blade Juggler, Ill-Gotten Inheritance. I don't see how you're losing that game. 
Yeah, it's very tough because ill-gotten inheritance then is attacking your opponent from a second angle. So they're trying to stabilize against your aggression and card advantage from Blade Juggler and this enchantment that's difficult to interact with. And there's been like a lot of, maybe not controversy is the right word, but a lot of differing opinions on ill-gotten inheritance from like, it's unplayable to like, I'll play as many in any kind of deck. You know, you got a lot of people, Ben Stark coming down on like, I only want it in an aggro deck because it's like a lava axe. I just listened to this week's episode of Limited Resources with Huey and he was saying like, well, I'm lower on that card than a lot of people, so I don't see it very often. Like, I think we sort of landed on, are we on the Ben Stark side of things? It's best in an aggressive deck. Are you playing it in like a control deck? Do you believe in the Iggy control? I think there's an Iggy control deck out there. And I think it's also, maybe you're not starting it in your control deck, but it's super powerful out of the sideboard too, whether or not you're an aggressive deck if you're in the right matchup. Some decks just cannot beat Ill-Gotten Inheritance. I think it's the third best black common, and I think it's I think it's a very good card in the format that a lot of people dismissed pretty hard in the set review. Well, I think the reason it's the number three black common is because it's a reason to build your deck in a certain way. I'm not just taking it and going, this is going to go in any black deck. I'm taking it and going, this is good enough for me to want to lower my curve and turn my draft towards an aggro Rakdos or aggro Orzhov deck. Number 11. Remember, folks, you can sacrifice captive audience to final payment. So, you know, we've all sacrificed a creature in response to a removal spell with final payment. We've all maybe sacrificed a a high alert or some enchantment like an angelic exaltation that's been sticking around. You know, we, we, we remember that text on final payment of sacrifice creature or enchantment. But let's remember that captive audience, if your opponent casts it on you, you gain control of that enchantment. So if you're an Orzov deck and you've got that card, you can final payment it away. Yeah, feels pretty good. Captive audience, I was way too high on. It's not good. That card is bad. I have won games that no other card could win, and I still think it's bad. Number 12, affect the board before deciding to adapt your creatures should be the rule. In general, you get yourself in trouble if you decide to try adapting before developing your board, because all of a sudden then one bounce spell or one removal spell can really set you behind tempo-wise. So just developing your board and playing out multiple threats and then start using the threat of activation of adapt to your advantage, I think is probably the best way to go. Yeah, you said this, uh, maybe it was last week or a few weeks ago, and it really hit home with me. Oh, no, it was during our uh, What's the Play It was during episode. our What's the Play, yep. Yeah, and it really stuck with me about like why adapting should be the last thing you do. And I think about it, like if you have two adapt creatures in play and a third in your hand, it's so much better to have more options because it makes your opponent's life more miserable as well. If you're entering combat with three adapt creatures then you have so many different options and they have to play around so many different things. Whereas if you like do two and you adapt your sword form hybrid and they have some way to interact, even if it's not immediately in combat, but then on your turn, then you're left with one creature. You're having to rebuild your board in some way. Like it's much better to like get all the threats out of your hand and then use that mana in the like most efficient way possible. Yeah, so I think there's two things going on here. You should be trying to develop your board before you adapt your stuff. But if you know you're going to adapt before attacking, like with a Soraform hybrid, a lot of times it's correct to do it pre-combat to play around things like Summary Judgment. Number 13, Growth Spiral can be a combat trick with Gatebreaker Ram. So we're not only here for just broad strokes, we're here for the nitty gritty. We want people to come back and listen to this episode when it comes back on Arena in a few months and, and they go, well, I just want to like pick this format up quickly. You got to know these nitty gritty interactions. So Gatebreaker Ram in play, you can just play blue green, not just for applied biomancy, but Growth Spiral can put a gate into play at instant speed to give that Ram a permanent plus one plus one boost. 
Number 14, the official Lords of Limited gate payoff power rankings. Do we need we need to review these for you, I think, for some pack one pick ones a couple <gasps> weeks ago? What? <laughs> Number five, Gateway Sneak. Number four, Archway Angel. Number three, Gates Ablaze. Number two, Gate Colossus. And number one, Gatebreaker Ram. All hail the sheep. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I, in my defense, I did put this list together in the show notes. Correctly. Well Maybe done. I've learned. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Number 15, Mortify is the best uncommon in the set. This is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, I don't think. But just the fact that you have the efficiency of three mana, kill anything at instant speed, plus the ability to have main deck enchantment removal for... You know, not only the Scourge of the Format that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but the cards we've talked about already. Rhythm of the Wild, maybe you need to kill, even though we're not super impressed by it. But Dove Security, High Alert, Ill-Gotten Inheritance. There's Law Mage's Binding. There's Sky Tether. There's Slime Bind. I think Mortify really, you know, came out ahead and has stayed ahead of the rest of the uncommons in the set. Number 16, Savage Mash is the best gruel common. And again, this is another one that took, you know, three, four weeks to figure out. I think both you and I had uh, Frenzied Erynx as the number one common for a significant amount of time and weren't having much success with Gruul and then really tried to start building Gruul as a focused beatdown deck with Savage Smash sort of being the centerpiece of the deck. Mm -hmm. And I think the quality of your Gruul deck is directly related to the number of Savage Smashes you have. Yeah, I mean, I've seen trophies or whenever arena wins with four drop Gruul decks with a bunch of frenzied erynxes and sunder shamans and rampaging rend horns and i'm not saying that those decks can't get the job done but i would much rather have a pile of twos and three savage smashes i think those decks are going to have a much greater success rate number 17 gyre engineer is worse than simic locket you know, at the start of the format, Ari Lax, who has been getting into the habit of writing a number of blog posts about Limited, I highly recommend you checking those out. He was speculating that Azorius Locket was just better than Sphinx's Insight because, you know, it gave you mana and then you could pay the four mana at some point to draw two cards and that would just be about as good as Sphinx's Insight, but only better because you got that little bit of ramp. Now, I don't think that actually ended up bearing out because of how good the like win conditionless Azorius decks ended up being. But I definitely think that Simic Locket is better than Gyre Engineer. I don't think that two mana boost is important enough to sacrifice the fact that one, it's a terrible top deck late in the game. And two, it's so fragile. Anything kills it. You just like blow on it and it goes to the graveyard. <laughs> Number 18. Speaking of Lockets, Lockets are way more playable in this set than you think. And I think that's you know partially true because they were so bad in Guilds of Ravnica because the format was so fast. But yeah, it's just a different format. The format is slower. Card advantage matters a lot. The fixing matters a lot. I'm most frequently fond of, you know, if I'm playing Simic, running an Azorius Locket to splash my white card, and then you can still usually crack it by about turn eight, turn nine. And again, I think this is something that like you came in even before the set came out. You were like, I just think Lockets are going to be better in the set than they were in Guilds of Ravnica. And you were right. I don't think you knew to the extent you were going to be right, but you were definitely right. Number 19. Watch out for Fairy Duelist, folks. This is Fairy Chupacabra. This is Flame Tongue Duelist. Like, this thing <laughs> is just going to get those creatures dead. Don't attack into Blue X on turn two with your 2-1. Don't do it. Even if it's Imperious Oligarch, you don't have to do it. I think that this card is way better than I initially thought it was going to be. And I just love how many little interactions it has, how it, like, you know, helps 
play around the fight spells. It helps like save your creatures from those. It's really good at picking off X ones. It's really good at being a combat trick attached to a relevant body. You know, like a one power flyer for two mana isn't great, but adding in all that flexibility, I think makes it a, a really sought after card that I still think probably goes too late in draft. Yeah, I was playing it today and just thinking about how good it was. I used it to shrink my opponent's creature to get in a lethal attack with the Gate Colossus. Like, there's there's so many things Ooh, nice. that it does. It's just a super flexible card, and it just feels warm and fuzzy when you've got it in your hand. You know nothing bad's going to happen, and when you eat your opponent's two-drop, it just feels outstanding. I've gotten to the point where I don't attack on turn two into the two open mana, and I, this card is always on my radar now because it's such a blowout. Number 20. Addendum is a good reminder to not always fire off instance on your opponent's turn. So I think that the default, you know, once you're good and you learn about instance is that, okay, I should wait until the last possible second to use this card, but that's not always the optimal time to use your instance. And addendum is just a good reminder of that. It gives you a nice little bonus for playing it on your turn during your main phase when even if the card didn't have addendum, sometimes that would probably be the right thing to do anyway. Yeah, I think this is still a tough part of my game or a thing that I, I, I could stand to level up on. The biggest issue I have is when it's so it's like, when is it correct to do it at the last possible second? When is it correct to just do it on your turn while your opponent's tapped out? And when is it correct to do it on their upkeep? Instants are very tricky. That was my favorite episode of LR. I remember leveling up so much when they did their episode on removal and when to use their removal. I had never thought about why you would want to use removal in your opponent's upkeep i remember like that blowing my mind yeah that's really interesting all right number 21 we got to talk about it at some point today so might as well be now ethereal absolution is the best or perhaps depending on how you're looking at it worst card in the set i would have been fine if this card never got printed i think it would have made this set much better or if it were mythic it's just a completely unfun card to play against. It like turns games that were interesting into non-games. Just it's an oops, I win card and I don't love it, but it does exist in the set and you should just never pass it. Like you get it pack three, figure out a way to jam it into your deck. Yeah, it's really good. I will say it does make for good stories when you do beat it. I mean, I felt I feel my competitive drive goes way up when I play against it and I sideboard so much harder. And I think one thing you can do if you have access to cards in your sideboard is to just side into bigger creatures. Because, you know, if, if it's giving your 5-5 five, five, minus 1 minus 1, you know, that 4-4 four, four is still putting them on a pretty hard clock. Yeah, I agree with that. And number 22, the Guild Mage Power Rankings. I'm ending up with all our power rankings. I know, I know. Number 5, Combine. That's Simic. Number 4, Cult. Rakdos. Number 3, Syndicate. Orzov. Number 2, clan gruel and number one the lords of limited preview card senate guild mage is an absolutely bonkers card and it is amazing worth splashing in any deck that can do it card can just take over the game i think there's still people out there who don't quite understand how good senate guild mage is it's a b plus right oh yeah what you just said it's splashable i think is a big key like it, unlike some of these other guild mages like it's gonna do its work when you cast it on turn six because you know, Senegal Mage on turn two is fine, but if you're developing the board, you're probably not even using it on those first few turns anyway. Like, and then you might be inclined to like trade it off with a two drop because that's what you're supposed to do with it, you know? But on turn six, it's just going to stop you from ever flooding out. It's going to stop you from dying to Rakdos's top decked burn spell or whatever. Like, it's just going to do so much work. I think the other biggest mover and shaker here for me is Simic Guild Mage in last. I really wanted that card to be a lot better than it was. I expected it to, to get to do stuff. It's just a little too expensive, both abilities really. But it's really hard, again, if you're curving out with it, 
to get counters on any creatures of relevance. Like you're just going to play your three drop and then your four drop. And then what else do you have left? Number 23, consistency is king in this sealed format, folks. I think all of my sealed testing for GP Cleveland bore out that I would much rather have a streamlined two-color deck that could curve out two, three, four, had a good curve of creatures. Then I wanted to like build some cool control deck and Esper and take advantage of my powerful removal or whatever, but still have a clunky mana base. Like I just wanted to make sure that my deck functioned 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 every round because mulliganing in sealed just felt so bad yeah i would i and that sort of was a shocker to me if you'd pulled me before we ever did any sealed testing i would have said this would be like a five color garbage play your best cards format because the draft format was so slow but it really did bear out the consistency was super important and i think being on the draw felt really great in sealed too Mm -hmm. and still continues to be true in draft some number 24 four is the magic toughness number there's several reasons for this there's plague white things with four toughness can like actively block plague white which is pretty tough to do yeah there's skewer the critics that does three damage to target creature or player there's a lot of three powered attackers running around especially in gruel you know there's rubble belt runner things that can block the early aggressive threats and four toughness just feels like the sweet spot to do that number 25 arrestor's admonition is the best blue common not chillbringer or Senate Courier, Ethan. Yes, yes, <laughs> we all remember. I'm not sure I'm quite on board with this. I don't think I. I don't think pack one, pick one. I'm taking admonition over Chillbringer. Am I supposed to be doing that? I'm doing it. I I would wow. feel great about doing that right now. And then, are you diversifying after that? Are you like taking the first Chillbringer over the second one? Or are you just jamming as many admonitions as you can? I want as many admonitions as I could get. I have never, never been disappointed with that card in my hand. Never once. It's very, very good. Turns out, bounce a thing, draw a card. Doomblade, draw a card, right? That's right. Speaking of, number 26, Slimebind is the blue Doomblade. This is where I'm supposed to say, yeah, you're right. That and is I, where you're supposed to say that. <laughs> and I, I, think I, I think I do believe that that is true. You know, I was really low on this card in the set review, and I then, like, talked myself up on it a bit more because I was like, well, it's like a combat trick with upside. That's how I'm going to get, like, myself on board with this. And now I'm just at a point where like I'm happy with like three or four of these in my, you know, high alert decks with Senate couriers, my Dovin's Acuity decks that are just trying to not die. It's just very good in Azorius Flyers beatdown deck. Just does the work. Even in Simic, I'm like, yeah, I'll play this because it's still just a combat trick. Right. Number 27, Goblin Gathering is a thing in this format, especially on Arena, and that goes in tandem with the card Cavalcade of Calamity. That really did end up being a deck. I don't know how good of a deck, but you know, you get your one power attackers, your Footlight Fiends, your Tin Street Dodgers, your Rakdos Trumpeters that can then get pump after they attack. And then you just get a bunch of Goblin Gatherings. You know, you can be the person with four, five, six of these. And it really was a deck that I lost to a number of times. I never had the pleasure of getting the Nuts version myself, but it was a real deck for sure. Yeah, I think it was more of a niche thing because I also never played it. But, you know, we saw 3-0 trophy decks, you know, on MTGO in the Discord. Mm-hmm. And I, I have lost to it on Arena. So it definitely is a thing. I don't think it's a super common thing, but it is something to be aware of if you're drafting the format. Yeah, agreed. Number 28, Sky Tether is a very powerful card if you put it in the right deck. And I feel super strongly about this. I think a lot of people were and still are pretty low or too low on this card. It is 
in a controlling deck or in a deck with flyers, it is literally swords to plowshares, which is just crazy powerful. Like the the tempo swing of, you know, your opponent plays five mana for their Rubble Belt Recluse, the 6-5, and you get to pay one mana to just totally invalidate it and then fly over the top or kill them with ill-gotten inheritance or whatever the case might be, grind them into submission with Dovin's Acuity plus Clear the Mines. Sky Tether can be and is one of the best cards in your deck. Now, it will not be if you're planning to attack on the ground and maybe can be playable, but its power level fluctuates drastically and you should be making an effort to take it, I think, and build around it. I think it is that powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think folks sort of go too hard in one direction and then they're playing it in a deck where like, you know, yeah, you've got a few grasping thrills and maybe a syndicate messenger, but the rest of your creatures are attacking on the ground. You've got plague whites, you've got blade jugglers, etc. And and I think you want to evaluate how effective the card is going to be in each deck where you have the potential to play it. Number 29, clear the stage and flames of the raised boar look very powerful, but they just didn't get there. You know, all the like ferocious matters for power matters stuff in this format just didn't feel like it got there. And part of the reason was that Rakdos just didn't have four power creatures. You know, it had debtors transport and rubble belt recluse. And that was just about it. You didn't really want to be playing these like six mana and five mana conditional removal spells or like, you know, not conditional, but overcosted removal spells with potential upside. Yeah, I would say you were one of the first people to point out that these cards were not good. And I didn't believe you. It took me a while, but I finally came on board. So props to you for calling out that these cards were not good. Woohoo! Number 30, Daggercaster and Bladebrand were not as oppressive as it seemed like they would be when the spoiler came out. You know, you saw this uncommon plus common Plague Wind combination in a guild. And it just looked like that was going to be miserable and happening all the time. And I just don't think it is. And I think that's worth noting that two cards just aren't that likely to come together if you've got one of each in your 40 card deck or even two of each without a lot of card filtering, which Rakdos doesn't have. And that sort of made me reevaluate Splinter Twin in Cube a little bit, like just how much you really effort you have to go to to be able to dig through your library to find two cards. So I think, you know, this exists and it happened and it was cool. It felt great when you did it and it was miserable when it happened to you. But I think it was fine to exist in the format. I think there's a lot here. One is that it's two cards. Two is that it's six mana in a guild that didn't want to like be doing things at six mana. And three, neither of these cards on their own were very impressive. Blade Brand, you had to do some work for like, yeah, I know it can like do stuff with Plague White and it does stuff with Dagger Caster and it like can just cantrip on its own. But it's not a card you were like happy to play. And Dagger Caster was not a card I was happy to play in my main deck if I like didn't have a train wreck of a draft, you know? Yeah, I think that was the thing that Daggercaster ended up being less good than we thought. I, I am pretty happy with Blade Brand. I'm happy to play Blade Brand in my Orzov or Rakdos decks. Yeah, I guess it's like a C minus. Like it'll it's fine. It can be in my deck, but I'm not actively looking to take any copies of it. I think it's a C. I actively want one copy, maybe two. I don't know about all that, but we're going to number <laughs> 31. The CCDD Lords of Limited Power Rankings. Number five. Sphinx of Nuprov, which is shocking because Azorius is what we have as the best guild. These are almost inverse of the guilds. Yeah, that's right. Number four, Basilica Belhaunt. Number three, Frilled Mystic. Number two, Sunder Shaman. And number one, Rakdos Firewheeler. If you ever dead revels a Rakdos Firewheeler, your opponent has no chance to win that game. I will tell you that. No chance. Number 32, Angelic Exaltation looked kind of bad during spoiler season. I think you and I both poo-pooed it a little bit. And then after playing with it, we thought it was awesome, just an insane bomb. And then turns out it's actually somewhere in the middle. Like, I think it's a C plus. 
I think it's pretty good in some Orzhov decks and in some Azorius Flyers decks. It doesn't really make me want to play white at this point, but if I'm in a white deck that has a lot of creatures, I will happily put it in my deck. Yeah, I think this stems from the fact that there are just so many build around enchantments in the format, and I think this just comes up short against them. If you're looking at what white has access to, it has access to Acuity, it has access to High Alert, it has access to being an aggressive Orzov deck, and then you want ill-gotten inheritance. Like You just don't have room for do-nothing enchantments or enchantments that require you to have creatures or other spells. Like All of those cards are pulling you in different directions, and I don't think there's room for multiples of them you know so many times i see acuity and high alert in the same deck in discord decks and i'm just like no 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 build towards one or build towards the other don't build towards both and i just feel like that's sort of the problem exaltation is a powerful card for sure and i won't dismiss this kind of effect again but it just didn't stack up against what the rest of the set had to offer speaking of enchantments number 33 verity circle good or bad ben I think it's probably bad, I, no. I, you know, and you were you were a big champion of this card and it is powerful, but five mana is so much. And if you're actually having to use it defensively for five mana, then your opponent is just developing their board and you're getting farther and further behind. So really, the only situation when it's really good is when you're at parity or ahead. And when that is the situation and your opponent does have ground creatures, you feel like a million bucks. But I think the the knock on it is that it's too bad when it's behind. And a lot of times you want it in a controlling deck. I don't know. It just didn't ever really feel great when it got there to me. And I think it does certainly go up in value if you have effects like Chillbringer or things that can just tap your opponent's stuff without investing five mana into it. But by and large, I think this ends up as like a C for me. Yeah, I think the biggest problem with this card in looking back at how it plays out in the set is that the decks where it's good against, it's too slow. And so, right, it's not good against the white decks because they've got, you know, Azori says all the flyers and Orzov has some flyers, it has afterlife tokens and it has grasping thrall. So it's not really great there. It's not really good against Simic because you've still got Aramunculus as like a pretty big threat in that deck. And then you get to the aggro decks the Rakdos and the Gruul decks, and it's just too slow. And so like those are the decks where you have the ground creatures to hit, but then you just probably don't have the time for it. So I just don't think there's any deck in the format really where it matches up super, super well. Number 34, Priest of Forgotten Gods is a powerful build around in Orzov. I have not had the pleasure of playing with this, but I've had the misfortune a couple times of playing against opponents that were just absolutely going off with it, and I got thoroughly trounced in those games. I just yesterday trophied with an Orzhov deck with this card for the first time. I like had the Priest, I had Hero of Precinct 1, I had Vindictive Vampire, I had Dead Revels, I had Tesa, like I had all the goodies, and Priest was just absurd. It draws you a card, it hits them for two, and it gives you two black mana. It does a lot. It does a lot more than you think it does. You think it's just, sat, you know, you sack two things to kill one of your opponent's things. No, no, no. It's doing way, way more than that. Number 35, Dovin Grand Arbiter feels like one of the most balanced Planeswalkers for Limited ever and had a really cool effect on gameplay that wasn't, in fact, totally busted. Like, yeah, it was like kind of game warping, but it didn't feel like a must kill in an immediate sense, you know, depending on how your opponent was activating it and depending on what the board looked like. There was just like a lot of variables. Well, and I think you had time, right? It slowly ticked up towards ultimate and the fact that it minused to protect itself and then was down to two loyalty and the thing that was protecting it was often a chump blocker. Yes, the game turned into can I kill Dovin, but it wasn't 
can I kill Dovin this turn or I lose? You right. had three or four or five turns to kill Dovin before you were really in trouble. And even then, like it was able to be ignored or like massaged to a certain extent. You were aware of it, but it didn't feel like, oh, I lose every time my opponent plays this on turn three. Number 36, RNA mechanics power rankings. In fifth place, addendum. In fourth place, riot. Third, spectacle. Second, adapt and number one afterlife yeah i mean i think we all knew that turning creatures into doomed travelers was pretty good even before playing with afterlife one one flyers are very good and limited and i think that was a lot of orzov you know being the best guild i think a lot early on and i think the only reason orzov isn't the best guild is because azorius is so flexible and just like trump's Orzov so hard, and there's just multiple builds of Azorius, whereas Orzov is kind of doing the one thing. Yes, there's some aggro decks, yes, there's some control decks, but ultimately it's trying to grind the opponent out, and it just cannot grind Azorius out. Number 37, Plague White is, in fact, unblockable. I mean, you really got to stick a Rampaging Renhorn or a Frenzied Arings. Like, you got to be in Gruul before you can blank this card. And especially because of the, the one-two punch of Plague White into Blade Juggler, you're just trading whatever two drop you have for this card. I don't care if it, I've blocked many Plague Whites with Senate Guild Mage, and I'm not embarrassed about it. Well, and it just feels it feels bad, right? It also has keyword crappy on it, right? Where yeah, you just right. feel bad trading a card for it. So you end up not blocking it quite as soon as you should. Yeah, I think we've now learned our lesson in that respect. But early on, I was like, I can't do that. I'll just wait six turns and then I'll block it with my two two. Number 38, RNA is a slow, grindy format. And I think, you know, yes, there are Rakdos decks. Yes, there's Simic, Tempo, Aggro. But ultimately, you know, if you're putting this on a scale next to GRN, it's much slower. Card advantage matters a lot. I'm frequently choosing to draw, especially with Orzov, even in draft. There's room to splash. The lockets are great. And I think that all contributed to a super interesting format with really deep gameplay and a really deep craft experience. Number 39, speaking of, you should be on the draw in Sealed in the dark 100% of the time, period. And Orzov almost always wants to be on the draw in draft. Why is that? Because the extra card matters so much. I just played an Orzov mirror today. I texted you. I was so pumped after winning. I outplayed my opponent so hard. And one of the key ways I outplayed my opponent was I choose to draw in game one in the dark with Orzov because my deck really wants card advantage. And their Orzov also. Game two, they didn't choose to draw. And in game three, they also didn't choose to draw. And I think that was a big deciding factor in me winning the match. The extra card matters a ton. And every resource for Orzov matters so much. And you have such good early defense. You have dorks like Imperious Oligarch and things like that to trade off and start getting afterlife tokens. Number 40, the Gates deck was super busted in the first two to three weeks of the format and then sort of balanced out on MTGO, but still is pretty oppressive on Arena, even after the update to Arena. So Arena was just gate fest for about the first month. And even on MTGO, my first drafts, my first 20 drafts were all various flavors of Gates deck, it felt like. And even still now on Arena, you get past gate payoffs way too late, and there are still really good gate decks floating around. But it's come down on MTGO because people have started to realize how good the payoff cards are, and they don't go too late on MTGO anymore, and people are picking the gates appropriately highly now. Number 41, thank you for giving me this one as well. Depose Deploy looks good, and it is much better than it looks. You know, just even last night, I was drafting with some other folks who were like peering over my shoulder, and I was solidly in Azorius, and I don't remember what the other pick was. It was uh, Depose Deploy, there was a Chillbringer, and I think there was one other Azorius card in the pack that was strong, maybe a Night Arbiter, and 
I was like, this is an easy to pose deploy for me. Like the flexibility of this card is so strong. So let's talk about the flexibility of the fact that the first half is like a pretty easy cantrip that provides tempo for two decks, potentially three decks that want it, right? Because it's a hybrid card. So it goes in three of the five guilds. You can play it in Azorius, Simic, or Orzov. And then the fact that gates are high picks means it doesn't take much to be able to, even if you're not in an Azorius deck, be able to splash deploy in either Simic or Orzov. And at that point, you're golden because both of those cards do so many different things, right? Depose is tapping a thing, which can either be it's going to tap a creature to gain you life. It's going to tap a creature to remove a blocker. It's going to just help you cantrip into the land you need or the spell you need. All of that is very good. And then you look at deploy and it's also doing so much. It's like giving you evasive threats. It's gaining you life. It's providing ambush blockers. It's helping you win a race that your opponent doesn't know you can you can win and gaining you that life and giving you those extra attackers. Like There's just so much packed into this one little card. It's so flexible. Yeah, I took way too long to come around on this. You were high on this from the beginning, and I was sort of poo-pooing it. And even, you know, then I got higher on it, and I'm probably appropriately high on it now, but it is a fantastic card. Yeah, one of the best uncommons in the set, for sure. I would agree. Number 42, Cry of the Carnarium is not Golden Demise. And, you know, it's funny because on Arena, you draft both these sets fairly close together. Yeah. And Golden Demise is, you know, like a B-plus in Rivals of Ixalan and Cry of the Carnarium, a very similar effect is like sideboard material that's not good sideboard material in Ravnica Allegiance. And I think a big part of that is that it just doesn't line up well with what the Black Guilds want to do. The Black Guilds want to flood the board with a lot of cheap creatures that Cry of the Carnarium kills, so you'd never want it in your deck. Yeah, it's so funny. Like this and Clear the Stage at Uncommon are both cards that like seem powerful, but they're so bad in what the Black decks have to offer. Number 43, good two drops are difficult to come by in Ravnica Allegiance and should be picked accordingly highly. We're looking at things like the mother of all of them, Soraform Hybrid, you know, Impassioned Orator is a card that I was really high on and then came down on a bit. Sage's Rose Savant is another card that I was lower on and have come up on. Silhana Wayfinder is great at Uncommon. Plague White is great. Red didn't really get one, did it? I think that might be one of the reasons it's not good. Like Feral Maka isn't a good two drop. No. Gravelhide Goblin is okay, but that's more of a gruel card than red. Yeah, the good ones are good, and the bad ones are very, very replaceable. Number 44, there are a lot of good four drops in this format, especially in black-white, and that slot can get clogged in a hurry. My most recent trophy deck that I just played today on MTGO was an Orzov deck, and I probably had eight or nine four drops wait so but it's but you trophied so it sounds like we should be drafting all the four drops uh i i played super well to trophy <laughs> with that deck not to toot my own horn so yeah there are just there are just tons of cards in that slot there's carrion imp there's syndicate messenger there's ill-gotten inheritance there's dead revels and those are just a common and there are a lot of really powerful uncommons rares the slot just gets clogged in a hurry if you are not careful Number 45, Galloping Lizrog looks powerful, but it did not get there at all. You really nailed this early on. I mean, this card is just miserable. You do not want your five drop to be overcosted and also not be a thing you can curve out with. When you really put it in those terms, I was like, yep, that makes total sense, right? There's no scenario where you're curving out with this card. And so it's really like an eight drop or a seven drop. And even then, like, why that do you make sure other creatures worse? Right, right. So like the like dream scenario is like, oh, I attack with my Soraform hybrid and then post combat, it has to have no damage on it because otherwise it'll probably die. And then I take all the counters and put it on Lizrog and make a huge creature. It's just like, you've already won that game. Literally play anything. Yeah, I took playing with this once in Simic and having it in my hand, and I was like, oh, this card is terrible. 
Don't put that in your deck. And number 46, Bring to Trial is much better on Arena than it is in paper. And I think that's a, a nod to the Arena metagame being warped, which we discussed a lot last week on our Drafting with the Bots episode, which I think was a really cool episode and a cool look into the world of drafting on Arena. And the, the reason is there's just gate colossus, there's more Sorrowform hybrids running around. Your opponent is more likely to have a large creature in their deck based on what the bots leave open frequently in draft. Number 47, I feel like you should have this one, Ben. Quench is the worst i just got quenched again today twice in just brutal brutal <laughs> circumstances i had uh two quenches in a simic aggro deck earlier this week on arena and i seven won with that so yeah no i that's i would be fine getting quenched by simic aggro decks that would not bother me because quench belongs in that deck i get quenched by like these banned control decks or like gruel splashing quench i get if my opponent has two mana and one of them are blue i'm going to get quenched so other than the fact that ben is the unluckiest person in the world the takeaway here is that quench has a role in the format and i believe that is in a simic aggro deck it lets you cast a spell cast a creature whatever and also hold up this mana it's something for you to do on turn two you're fine quenching a two drop you're also fine using it to protect your own stuff while you're ahead on board so I think that's that's its best home. I would say the other place where it's not totally embarrassing is in the Gates deck, especially on Arena. Like if you're scrounging, like if the true Gates deck that's got like 12 Gates and you're like maybe light on playables for your 23 playables because you invested so many picks into Gates because you're playing off curve. So having on turn three, when you've played your third tap land, being able to have quench up and like get back in the game is a respectable play. Number 48, one mana combat tricks like Stormstrike are very important to Gruul because it allows you to double spell and snowball. So Gruul doesn't have a lot of ways to gain tempo advantage or card advantage, and Stormstrike lets you leverage combat, play another threat, and stop you from flooding a little bit because of the scry one. And Court of Calls was actually the person that put me onto this in the Lords of Limited Discord. I think I was underrating that most of the format, and once I started valuing that one mana trick higher, I started doing a lot better with Gruul. Yeah, I'm a fan of both Storm Strike and Stony Strength in Gruel and Stony Strength and Simic Aggro as well. I just think that flexibility and it's really hard for your opponent or whoever is on the other side of the battlefield of that like one mana trick to do a lot about it because it's so efficient. Number 49, Burning Tree Vandal is one of the only ways Gruel has to filter and draw cards and it's very important to the success of the archetype. This card just kept going up for me. I mean, once I realized that I was not happy when my opponent cast this on turn three and gave it haste, I was like, oh, this card is much better than I thought. I thought it was going to be a turn behind and be a three mana three two, but it's flexible. It gives you card filtering and selection, which is really important to Gruul because it does not want to flood out. It's just a really rock solid three drop. Yeah, I would add Rakdos to that list as well. I think it's vital to both of those archetypes. Mm -hmm. But I guess the thing about Rakdos is Rakdos is hoping to be juggling on turn three. Right, right. And number 50, there are so many more than five guilds in this set. Yeah, I mean, just coming off the heels of Guilds of Ravnica, it felt like we were going to have that recipe again. We're just going to rinse and repeat, but it really wasn't. And I mean, kudos to R&D, I think, except for the fact that I felt like GRN was kind of a flop. The longevity of this set has felt real. I, I think I'm going to be happy drafting this up until War of the Spark. Yeah, I think this is a top fiver for me all time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's just a lot to discover. I think it has something for every kind of player. You know, it didn't even though it's like a slow grindy format. There are aggro decks you can play that are good. And for the control player, it's got a lot of tools for the player that likes to splash. It's got a lot of tools. 
there's something for everybody in this set and i was really happy to play it yeah and there's a lot of those hallmarks you know you wrote that awesome article for cards for about like you know the eight check boxes of limited sets and it's got almost all of those things like lands matter a ton mm-hmm. there's sweet build around enchantments and you know just azorius has the dovin's acuity deck it has the high alert deck it has just a straight flyers deck it has like the no win conditions clear the mind dovin's acuity deck like there's so many different flavors and that's not including splashing or the gates deck there are so many archetypes in this format compared to grn and it was just a huge breath of fresh air I just said on this episode that yesterday, for the first time, I played a deck. Like, I played the Priest of Forgotten Gods deck. I hadn't gotten to do that. I feel like there's still stuff out there that I haven't gotten to do. And I I hope to get to continue to explore the format for what it has to offer. I think that's a good place to wrap us up. That was a super sweet episode, and I think that'll be super useful to go back and listen to when this format comes back on Arena, or even if it comes back on MTGO Flashback Drafts. Agreed. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. You can check us out on Twitch and Twitter. I am at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. rankings in fifth place gruel boo in fourth place rectos in sixth oh <laughs> that is not how rankings work yeah. five <laughs> four six six yeah yeah <clears throat>